book of Leviticus and coming into Numbers, we're still continuing on a section and these people being prepared to go into the promised land, but you can't just prepare in any way. You have to prepare in holiness. You have to be made holy if you're going to live in the holy land. And if you're following the schedule, you'll notice my first typo, <laughs> which, I, which is this. Oh, I have a typo on the board here too. Okay. A rhino, yeah, a rhino instead of a typo. Okay. This is why I usually don't share my notes with people because they're full of rhinos and typos. Uh, we're actually looking at numbers 7 1 to 10 10. And the next typo in the schedule is the, our very last lesson, which uh, is meant to go all the way through the end of the book, you know, chapter 36. It looks like it ends on verse 36 of another chapter, but I'm actually going through that. But that'll make more sense when that <laughs> happens and we get there. As we go through this lesson, one of the things that I'm going to point out that I, you know, I, I'm always doing anytime I'm teaching or preaching, as I'm always going through those hermeneutical questions, we've talked about the what, why, and so what. And I'm going to try to make that you know, obvious while we work through this lesson just to help us to continue to grow in that skill together. But you know, we're always doing this when we're reading anything. We're doing hermeneutics, like you buy that uh, piece of Ikea furniture that's going to last a few months in your house and then be disposed of, because when you try to move it, it all collapses. But you get an instructional manual, and you say, you know, what does it say? Well, it says these things. Well, why, why does it say the things that it says? Well, so that I'll build the furniture in this particular way, Instead of doing what's right in my own eyes and then go, well, why do I have this leftover piece? <laughs> you know, so what? Take the little provided Allen wrench and build it this way. But you also know when it comes to those sort of hermeneutical things, there's some people that are a little bit more advanced and they take that little Allen wrench, they say, forget it, somebody get my impact driver. We're going to do this right and we're going to do it quick. <laughs> It's like that when we read anything. The, uh, this is just how, how reasoning, thinking, interpreting works. You know, working through the what, why, and so what. And we're going to do that through these sections here in Numbers. You remember last week, the title of the lesson in the first six chapters was Holy God and Holiness are Central. Because God was teaching Israel that they need to have a worldview that's centered on God's holiness, because God has a plan to make his holiness known to all nations through this holy nation who would teach other people God's holiness through what they did and also what would happen to them. But this was to be taught to the other nations. And God's holiness, we saw, was demonstrated both negatively and positively which is laid out in the book of Numbers, the first 25 chapters, we're going to end up seeing God's holiness uh, demonstrated negatively. And the, the, the first generation gets executed in God's holiness. But then God 
by his, the, the power of his holiness, raises up a second generation and he refines them in holiness, which is chapters 26 to 36. And as we began, we saw there was this census in which a military was being formed within Israel because they were to go to war, which was to be a warning to the nations and to teach them about God's holiness. That God in his holiness will either execute you or refine you. That God is holy and if you disobey him, he will judge you. God is holy and he can also make you holy and bring you into his dwelling place through a substitutionary atonement. Uh, he can deliver and does also. And as we get to Numbers 7, 1 to 10, 10, there continues to be a focus on holiness and this preparing oneself in holiness to enter into God's holy land. God's holiness requires that you prepare and holiness, and we're going to work through these section titles here in this outline to discuss how we do that. One of them is just, it's the pleasure of worship. The other is the provision of life that God gives us to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. We also prepare in holiness by being the, the purification of the servants and God pur purifying us and in the proclamation of salvation. So if you join me in your copy of God's Word, we're going to begin in Numbers 7. And as we approach that together, let's pray. Our holy God, we pray that you would use your holy Word to prepare us in holiness, to enter into the place that you have prepared for us to live forever, to be your holy people forever, and to display your holiness in this life that you would disciple us in holiness, that we would be holy evangelists for the proclamation of your gospel in this life, that we would be holy in the things that we would speak and in the manner in which we would live. We pray that you would give us a greater desire for you and for living for you and you would sanctify us in the fellowship that we have now. Amen. Chapter 7. Begins, now it happened on the day that Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle, that he anointed it and set it apart as holy with all its furnishings and the altar and all its utensils. He anointed them and set them apart as holy. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their father's households, brought an offering near. They were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. And they brought their offering before Yahweh, six covered carts and 12 oxen and a cart for every two of the leaders and an ox for each one. And they brought them near before the tabernacle. Now I'm just reading that text. What, what of our hermeneutical questions have we already answered? What? What does it say? Yeah, that's where you start with, you just read the Bible. Well, what does it say? This is what it says. And what we have here, if you think about the, the ordering of events, is a flashback to the tabernacle. Because we think, wait, I thought that they already had built this thing. 
So what you find out is that numbers isn't chronological. It's laid out in a particular theological sort of order. If you look back and if you were to look back, you don't have to do this. I'll tell you what it says in Exodus 40, 17. It says, now it happened in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was erected. So you have first month of the second year. But the book of Numbers begins, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had gone out of the land of Egypt. So what you're seeing here is that it's not laid out chronologically, but theologically. And you say, well, that's what it says. Why do that? Why give us a flashback to the tabernacle? Why do you think that Moses would do that here? You think he's preparing his people. He's trying to give them a worldview of holiness. Why remind them of the tabernacle? How does this relate to being prepared in holiness? Yeah, Yeah. The, the, the tabernacle is a reminder that you guys aren't holy, God is, but, and he's the only one who can make you that through all of the stuff that the, the priest and the, that's going on with the sacrifices, which is just, it's not accomplishing that, but it's teaching that to them. So he's giving them a worldview and that God is going to do this and this is how it's going to work this is what defines you as a people. So this is, you know, in, in a way it's building out, you know, the declaration or the constitution of this new nation and how they're to understand themselves. You know, we're, we're the people that don't deserve a holy God to dwell among us, but he's here. He's tabernacling among us, but we can't go in there unless there's some sort of substitute sacrifice made for us. So it's like, well, why is it that God's here and we just had this big census take place? Well, to show that God has graciously delivered us to dwell among us. And that he's also the one who is here graciously guiding us right now. He's really actually here and he's really actually speaking to us. And we'll, build, we'll answer the so what question here in just a little bit. I want to look at the next two verses, verses 4 and 5. It says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Accept these things from them that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So they're giving you know, carts and oxen to the Levites for the worship service. Well, why, why are they doing this? Why are they bringing carts and oxen for worship? Why do you bring a shovel and a wheelbarrow to the church work day? Because they're useful. They, you know, they help you to get the job done. It's uh, perhaps such an obvious point you just overlook it. 
You know, it's kind of like a, well, duh. You know, if we're going to do this whole thing, we're going to need some carts and some oxen, obviously. And this brings us to the so what question. You know, how does this apply? Where you see the, the practicality of worship. You know, that God provides you know, the stuff that's needed to be able to do the thing. And this would be similar to, you know, well, why do we have a building to meet in? It's a, it's a practical sort of thing so that we can gather as God's people and worship somewhere. You know, why do we have chairs uh, so we can have a place to sit? And that, you know, that's all a part of worship. You know, people serving God by setting up the chairs, uh, the music being practiced beforehand, sound guys doing sound stuff, coffee guys setting up the coffee, bathrooms being cleaned, all of this sort of stuff. God cares about all these mundane, practical little things in our worship. That answers the, the so what question of the text. Moving on to picking up in verse 11 here and bringing gifts to the Lord. Verse 11 says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Let them bring their offering near, one liter each day for the dedication of the altar. Now, the one who brought his offering near on the first day was Nishan, the son of Amenadab of the tribe of Judah. Of his offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels. One silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, one year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amenadab. And then you see you know, second day, next leader, third day, next leader. You go 12 days, 12 leaders. And what you find, they all bring exactly the same thing. This is kind of like on the 12 days of Israel, my true love gave to me. Exactly the same gifts, every single one of them. So that's what it says, but why? Why do you see every tribe giving exactly the same gifts? Well, it shows they, they have equal access to, to worshiping Yahweh, and they have equal provision to bring gifts in worshiping together. Uh, another uh, way to look at it is that there isn't an elite group among any of them where, well, these people were just better and have you know more access and they're more privileged it's like no everybody has the exact same privilege you think about that even us as, as christians i think in john 1 16 it says for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace it's not well just some people get grace upon grace and others don't it's like well everybody receives that we all have equal access and equal provision to worship the Lord together because of his grace. Well, why, why is it that they bring forth these gifts? Why do they bring forth these gifts? 
because Yahweh said so. Yeah, don't overlook that. It keeps getting said over and over. You know, thus Yahweh spoke. Then Yahweh said. You know, he's present and he's guiding these people whom he loves. And you think, well, why this stuff? And why this way? And who's the one who's responsible for the order of service here? Yahweh. Now, is he asking them, what would you guys like to do? No. He's saying, this is what I like. <laughs> this is what I want you to do. I'm responsible for this. And, you know, why take 12 days? Why not just knock it out in one day? Well, because, one, you know, Yahweh commands that it be done this way, and he delights in it. You know, it brings pleasure to him, which is, you know, how I came up with this title chapter. It's about the pleasure of worship. This is how we prepare in, in holiness as we think about, well, what's pleasing to God? You know, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, we make it our aim to please him, not we make it our aim to get our preferences in worship. You know, we like these songs, these amendments, these seating arrangements. It's like, well, no, what order of service is most pleasing to God? What does he want of us? But you see that this wasn't something that was tedious and taking 12 days, but it was something that was pleasurable. I mean, you think about you know, a, a multi-course meal when you sit down. You don't say, you know what, just throw the steak on top of the salad and put the apple crisp and the vanilla ice cream. Just throw it in a blender so I can just chug it and get out of here. It's like, no. It's like, you know, bring it out, you know, one thing at a time. I'm not in a hurry. I want to enjoy it. It's the same thing like on a vacation. You don't just get somewhere and say, you know, let's just go see everything today and just go back home. It's like, no, we need more time. You know, if only we could have another week at this place. You know, the reason that it takes, you know, multiple days is for the joy of the worship and to... As you know, rushing can end up destroying the pleasure of a particular thing. And we want to take our time in delighting in who the Lord is and being in service to him. Which, again, to come back to the point that when it comes to our worship, we're, we're most concerned about what is pleasing to God. And we recognize often in that that you know, his ways are not our ways uh, our, our ways are immediate gratification and self-gratification. But you see that that's not how it worked here. It was a 12-day thing, not an immediate thing. And it wasn't for self as much as it was God-centered, but he was doing this for these people that they could share in his delight. So our focus isn't on what we want when we want it, but ultimately what he wants. And we find our greatest joy in that, which, you know, often we talk about Christian service, we say, you know, it's sacrifice. But we tend to think of sacrifice as a, a negative thing rather than a joyful thing. It's like, I don't want to sacrifice. But you know, see that this was all you know, out of joy. I, I think about that even with our, our fellowship meal. You know, why, why do we 
take the effort to cook the things that we do because of the joy set before us, right? It, but you know how easy it can be in your heart to think, man, I don't want to do this. I'm busy. I got enough stuff to do. I need to be cooking stuff in the instant pot and trying to come up with a dessert or a side just dish too. <laughs> but when you think about, I just love being with God's people and sharing that food and having more than enough. And then when other people are there visiting, uh, you know, we can tell them they can stay even though they didn't bring anything because we know that we're going to have enough and we can delight in the fellowship that we have together. Well, as you look through chapter 7, it's a really long chapter that climaxes in the last verse, verse 89. Here's the climax of the chapter. It says, now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. So he spoke to him, which was, this is a fulfillment of what was said in Exodus 25, that you know, God would meet with Moses and speak to him in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And you see that the climax of all of this gathering and worshiping was God's word being spoken and heard, God being met with, and fellowshiped with. And that's something that's, you know, very striking to me in reading through Leviticus into Numbers. You might remember in Leviticus class how we talked about if we had a red-lettered version of Yahweh's words that uh, the book of Leviticus would be 90% red. Because <laughs> you just keep saying, you know, thus Yahweh spoke. Thus Yahweh spoke. So he just keeps talking and everything's ordered around his word. But when he's speaking so much, it can become so ordinary that it, you just kind of drone it out in the background. But we don't want to grow dull to continuing to read. Like we're going to get to chapter 8. Guess what it begins with? Then Yahweh spoke to Moses. And you look at verse 5. Again, Yahweh spoke to Moses. It's like, this is amazing. He keeps talking to these people. <laughs> Especially just given how they've responded to him up to this point and you know, what's about to happen in Numbers. It's, it's a high privilege to hear God's word. Now you can see what I, what I just did there, what the text says, you know, why it was put there in its original context, but so what? Well, we also have the privilege of having God's word spoken to us and to hear it from God's messenger. This is a, an extraordinary privilege that we never want to treat as ordinary. If you get the, the physical prayer bulletin, not the email version, on the back of it, there's this thing for praying for the, the pastor in the sermon that's been on there for weeks and weeks. It's like, well, you know, why do that? It's like, well, because that, that's an extraordinary moment in the week. And in a way, it's like everything in the week is moving to, to that moment where we gather as God's people to hear from God's word through 
God's messengers so that we can further prepare in holiness, so that we can continue to prepare in the sojourn in this life with the God who is sojourning with us to go from this life to the next. Now, we know that we have a different mediator than was in the old covenant. Instead of Moses, we have Christ and we're under his law and we think about how this was, I thought about uh, Matthew 17, 5. It says, while, while Peter was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, this was the moment in the transfiguration where they, they saw what the tabernacle was pointing to you know, Jesus being the, the dwelling place, ultimately. And, say, and this is how the gospel of John begins, is that it, Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us to be our dwelling place and to speak to us. And you hear God the Father from heaven, you know, I- interrupting Peter, who's always saying something, and, you know, point out, listen to him. Stop listening to yourself. <laughs> but listen to him. This is my beloved son. And we, we hear from him through his word, through scripture, through that when it's read or even when it's seen among one another and we see Christ work in one another. We're hearing from the son and seeing him which helps us to listen to him chapter 8 here and concerns to preparing for holiness we see that God gives a provision for life to be able to do that to grow in holiness chapter 8 begins this way then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying speak to Aaron and say to him when you mount the lamps the seven lamps will give light in the front of the lampstand Aaron therefore did so He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Now, this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which Yahweh had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. Now, what was it that the the lampstand illuminated within the tabernacle. It doesn't say here. <laughs> so you just have to remember. So what other stuff was right there in that segment of the tabernacle? The altar of incense was on the other side of the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Showbread, there we go. So you have the, you know, the table of God's presence and the, and the bread. And what was the point of the bread that was laid out there that was being illuminated? Yeah, it represented God's provision. He had provided 
bread for them in the wilderness, which gave them life, and he gave them life so that they could live for him, but also to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So this was a a reminder that what the illumination of God's lampstand, that what it does is that it, it shows you that God provides. He provides for your life, those mundane sort of things like bread, clothes, so that you can live for him and seek him. And when it talks about this particular lampstand, it's one of the things that happens, especially in the Hebrew text, when it wants to emphasize a point, it repeats it. And it mentions that it was hammered work of gold twice. Uh, why, why is it being emphasized that it was hammered work of gold? Well, everything else was wood covered with gold. This was just pure gold. You think this, this light was uh, of particular interest and you know, special in a way like that. And it was created according to the pattern which Yahweh had shown Moses. So he had gotten you know, the, the instruction manual on building the, the furniture here, and it was made to be beautiful. It was, and we don't want to overlook that. And the, it, it wasn't just meant to be plain and austere, so that people wouldn't be, you know, distracted by other things in the world. And so, you know, just make it a plain white room with some hard, folded metal chairs. <laughs> so we'll just put the emphasis on on the Bible that way, and people won't be distracted with any decorations in the building. <laughs> you see that you know God cares about things being made with beauty, but what, what makes them beautiful is not just only the way that they appear to the eye, but the truth that they represent. Beauty is always tied to truth in scripture. You think about the psalmist who, he, he longed to be in the temple of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord. You know, he wanted to behold the beauty of God's truth being represented in things within God's creation and to see it done with skill according to God's pattern. What you think about, you know, our, our worship, we want it to be done according to God's pattern, according to how God has instructed us to worship because when we do that, it's beautiful, not only just in its appearance but in what it actually represents to us. Continuing on in chapter 8, there's four aspects of the, the Levites that we learn here. And this picks up in, in verse 5. I'm just going to point out a few of these things while we go th- through here. Four aspects of the Levites. Where am I going to, I'm going to take my hermeneutical questions away here. All right, four aspects of the, the Levites. First one is that they're sinners. All right, we know this. You read verses seven and eight, it says of the 
or well, I'll start in verse 5. Again, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Why? Why do you got to cleanse these guys? It says, thus you shall do to them for their cleansing. Sprinkle purifying water on them. Let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they will be clean. So there's this process that shows these guys need purification. Cleanse, razor, wash their clothes. Well, why, why do all of this stuff? Verse 12, uh, the last words of verse 12, it says, to make atonement for the Levites. You know, why, why do all this stuff? These guys were sinners who needed atonement. So what does this teach us about you know, ourselves, you know, any of us as God's servants, we are unfit for God's service apart from his atonement. Uh, he has to dedicate us to himself. He has to cleanse us. He has to make us ready to worship him, and he has a way that he does that. And the reason that we serve God in dedication to him is not for a thank you, from him, but because it's a, it's a duty that we delight in doing. This made me think of that parable that Jesus ended of talking about a master and slave, and he said of the master, is he grateful to the slave because he did the things which were commanded? He says, in this way also, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So you see there's this sort of attitude in that we don't care if we get thanked at all. We just love serving the Lord. And I remember that, uh, you know, one of my friends, we, we, we worked on a team of being maintenance guys for a building, and he, he brought up this text one day, and he, he said, you know, when, when we stand before you know, the judgment throne of God, he's not going to say thank you to any of us for anything that we did for him. <laughs> Said, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but I do recognize that in my sinfulness, I kind of have that entitled sort of mentality to think that he would. So I just realized, nobody needs to say thank you to me. I just, I just love serving the Lord, and nobody needs to say anything about it. I'm just happy to be in his service, and I, I'm just content to serve him. Second thing we learn about these uh, Levites is that they're substitutes we see that in verses uh, well a lot of verses throughout here but especially 16 to 18 in chapter 8 16 to 18 it says they are wholly given to me among the sons of Israel I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb the firstborn of all the sons of Israel for every firstborn among the, the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I have also taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. You see, the, the sons of Israel were substitutes, which you see this in action back in Verse 10, it says, Bring the Levites near before Yahweh, and the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. It's like, well, why are they laying their hands on the Levites? Well, this was a way that they're saying, 
you, you guys represent us. Uh, you guys are a substitute for us. This reminds us of that Day of Atonement where the, the priest would you know, lay the hands on, on the, the get-out goat. So we talked about there was a get-in goat and a get-out goat. And it was a way, and they would say, you know, this represents me. Like, I deserve to, to be slain, but instead this thing is slain as my substitute to teach me that God has a substitute for me. But you see here how it's being built out that the animal's not the substitute. Instead, it's going to be a man substitute. It's going to be a, a priest who is the sacrifice ultimately instead of you, which we see that the Levites were also, these priests were also sacrifices. You see this in verse 11, Aaron then shall present the Levites before Yahweh as a wave offering from the sons of Israel so that they were an offering that they may be qualified to perform the service of Yahweh. See this in verses uh, 15 and 16 that we read to, that they're cleansed and then presented as a wave offering. And verse 16 says that they're wholly given to me. Well, they're wholly given to them and a wave offering as what? As living sacrifices. And what were they? They were living, holy, and pleasing to God. Now, does that sound like something in the book of Romans chapter 12. So that's exactly how it describes you know, us as priests of the Lord mediating his presence in the world. We're living holy and pleasing to God as living sacrifices who aren't conformed to this world, but our minds being renewed and transformed by the word of God. The last aspect of these priests is that they're servants. In verses 23 to 26, uh, if you just look there at verse 24, it says, this is what applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall perform their duty in the service of the tent of meeting, but at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from their duty in the service and not serve anymore. They may, however, minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting in order to keep up their responsibility, but they themselves shall perform no service. Thus, you shall deal with the Levites concerning their responsibilities. Why do you think that they had this age restraint on their service, 25 to 50. Maturity is a piece of it in the, in the starting age, but, you know, people live a lot longer than 50. And you're only halfway through at that point. Some, well, you see that uh, they're taken out of the, the line of 
the priesthood, but they can still minister and they're helping their brothers to do all this, this other stuff. So they don't say, you know, you're too old to carry tent poles, so just watch us do it. <laughs> and some of you are over 50 and you know you can still do things. <laughs> you can also forget things. Hey, one, one thing it shows, it's their service was temporary, right? Uh, in, in a way, you remember this was all pointing forward to you know, a, another priest who is a priest forever. You know, when we read about the, how these things were instructing Israel toward that, especially in the book of Hebrews, you know, this uh, you know, administration of worship was temporary, but it was instructive to point you that you need to go to the permanent priest who is a priest forever uh, according to a different priesthood than this one. But the other thing is that it would protect Israel from putting any one leader on a, a pedestal. You know, like, well, I follow Apollos or I follow Paul. So, well, then all of a sudden Apollos retires. Now what? <laughs> it's, it helped them to not put their emphasis on one of these things so that people wouldn't divide over elevating certain servants, right? That's all that they are. They're just servants. You hear that same sort of concept in 1 Corinthians 3 where it, it says, for when one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord Gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. So same, same thing. This guy that you, that you maybe you really uh, elevate some particular servant in the priesthood. And it's like, well, who is he? What is he? He's going to retire when he's 50. He's going to be gone. Uh, you're going to have to have a faith that's built on something more than this guy who's about to retire. You need to have your, your faith and your worship built into something that's permanent rather than temporary. Chapter 9, I've titled this the, the Purification of the Servants. And you see that here in, starting in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Thus Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. Now, this is another flashback, but we're flashing back to Passover. This is actually one month before Numbers 1-1. So here, one month before Numbers 1-1. And why... Why flash back to the Passover? What was so significant about this event and why would it be brought to memory here? All the way back in Exodus 12, it says, and it will be when you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, right? So he's looking to... When you enter into the land, what are these people preparing to do now? Enter into the land. So he's like, go back and think about the Passover. He says, you know, enter into the land as he has promised. You shall keep this new slavery. Which he's talking about the Passover here. He says, and it will be when your children say to you, what is the meaning of this new slavery to you? 
They're saying this is going to be a multi-generational thing. You guys are going to keep the Passover so that you can tell your children what I did for you so that they can learn about how my salvation works through all of the things that I teach about through the Passover meal. He says, this is what you shall say to them when they ask you about it, because they're going to be curious on why are we killing Lammy? Like, we just got Lammy. You're going to tell them, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but delivered our homes. This was a, you know, a reminder that we had talked about how you know, the Passover exodus sort of event is you know, in, in the Hebrew scriptures is the equivalent of the cross in the Greek scriptures. It's the thing that God's people would look back to and say, that's how we were delivered. That thing right there, Passover is how we were delivered. But now we, similar, we look back and say, the cross, that's how we were delivered. This was a thing that reminded them of their identity as a nation and why they were be going to be going into the land. They weren't going to be going into the land uh, because they came up with a really great military strategy to leave Egypt or because they were you know, the, the greatest and most promising people on the planet with the most potential. Uh, they were going because of grace alone. The way that they had become God's people is because he provided a substitute sacrifice for them and he delivered them. This is a reminder that there are the people who were saved by grace alone. They were delivered into freedom to worship Yahweh in another land. So this is showing you're not there yet, but God's going to keep his promise and he's going to take you there. You need to tell your kids about it. Because as you see in the book of Numbers, the people who are going to tell their kids about it, they're actually not going to enter in. They're going to get executed, but God is going to refine that next generation and show the power of his holiness by making this next generation holy after an unholy generation. Well, in discussing the Passover here, there's... Uh, and the, I don't know what you want to call it. There's some extra instruction that comes up here where it says, well, what happens if you become unclean and touching a dead person before Passover? What do you, what do, you do? Well, first of all, if uh, you're a leader of guiding God's congregation, you do what Moses did in verse 8. This is 9-8. It says, Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what Yahweh will command concerning you. So he doesn't just answer off the top of his head. He's like, I'm going to go ask Yahweh. You guys wait here. I'll be back. <laughs> That's a good example. And the answer that he comes back with is, well, you know, if that happens, what do you do? He says, well, wait a month. But also when you're reading, it's like, well, why... Why was this exception not given before in the Passover instructions? Well, we see that God is deliberate in all of his instruction, and perhaps, you know, emphasis on the perhaps word here, perhaps he just waited until the need arose to give this further detail on this difficulty that might 
come up. It's similar to, you know, you're getting trained on a particular job and they don't explain to you every possible situation and dilemma that you might come up with, but you work out some of the, the nitty-gritty a little bit later. You just get started on the job because remember we had the whole grand opening of the tabernacle, the biblical priesthood, and all of that sort of stuff. And then as it got going, it's like, well, what if this happens? <laughs> you work out those things and on-the-job training. I think that's how it works there. But there's also this other situation in verse 13. It says, but what about the man who is clean and is not on a journey and he neglects to celebrate the Passover? So it's not an unclean guy, but it's a clean guy that doesn't show up. He treats worship as optional. What do we do with this guy who treats God like, this is not important. Uh, he treats God like, well, there's actually better things to do and there's some competing things in my mind and they're just more worthy to do than to travel out to the Passover. Well, what you read is that if you live like you're cut off from God, you will be cut off by God ultimately. Because you, you know how this comes up with kids. You, you make an exception for one kid in the house and you tell this other one, well, you know, you, you have to do the dishes, you know, right now after the meal. It's like, well, so-and-so so got to wait, you know, till later, and you made an exception for them, and you let them go do something else before they had to do it. It's like, yes, there was an exception that was made at that time, but you're able to do this right now. And the time to, to do it is now. You don't get a, a break just because you don't understand the ex exception or because you think about the Israelites say, man, Passover, Passover again, I got so much stuff to do around the tent. I need to mow the sand or something. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's, there's times in life where it's, like, it's time to go and gather with God's people, but there's stuff to do. There's competing interest, responsibilities, so what do you do? It's like, you can go. It's not an emergency situation. Uh, you, you are able to travel to, to worship with God, but you see there's this competing desire within you. We fail to, to grow in holiness when we fail to hate sin like that because we see that you know, God hates that sort of apathy toward gathering in, in worship with him and being indifferent to it. So much so that he says, you want to live like that? You want to live like you're cut off from me? I'll give you that. So you don't want that to happen to you. In relation to preparing in holiness, we, we fail to grow in holiness when we fail to walk by faith in God's word and to believe that this is important and that God has a reason for this and I need to trust him. Even though I can't totally make sense of it right now, I'm going, I'm going to keep the Passover or for us, you know, I, I'm going to go and gather with God's people and take the Lord's Supper. But the reason that we sometimes fail in this is because we're self-centered rather than God-centered. You know, we think about worship, we're, we're thinking about, well, what would be pleasing to me? Rather than, well, what would be pleasing to the Lord? You think about this, you know, instead of, you know, what would be pleasing to me in worship, what would be pleasing to him? 
And has God actually provided for you in your life that you're actually able to travel there and be there? Can you trust him to continue to provide food and clothing and uh, well-raked manicured sand around your tent to be able to go and gather with God's people? You also see in verse 14, it talks about the sojourner. If a sojourner sojourns among you and he celebrates the Passover to Yahweh according to the statute of the Passover and according to its judgment, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and for the native of the land. Here again, we see God's missionary heart. That's how I like to describe it. God wasn't just about saving Israel. His plan for Abraham, whose name meant you know, father of a multitude of nations, his plan was always for a multitude of nations, which we saw that in the recent sermon with the Gentile Jethro being the guy who, who gets saved out of you know, all the people through the Exodus event and what's going on there which we see the reality of this text also echoed in Ephesians 2.13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, you know, this was a terminology that was used for Gentiles. They were the people that were like really super far off. You know, we had talked about how the tabernacle was a gospel track. You know, you know, God is holy at the tabernacle. You have the priest who mediate for an unholy people and you have Israel that's right around it as the sinful people who need to be mediated for to be able to have relationship to holy God but they thought well look how close we are and look how far off those other people are you know thank you Lord that I'm not like those Canaanites who live way out there I mean I could walk to the tabernacle if I wanted to they would have to get a chariot or something He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, you hear that a lot throughout their worship. It's that you bring near your offering and you're brought near by the blood and the sacrifice and by atonement. You're brought near to the tabernacle. And what God does is he breaks down that dividing wall that uh, the, the sons of Israel had created between them and the Gentiles. And so God says, my plan was always to have the sojourners join you and not to be sojourners, but all of you together to become sojourners with me as I sojourn through the land with you. Lastly, in this chapter, we see the cloud. You might remember when we talked about uh, answering the, the so what question we, uh, we worship God for his works is one of the things that we look for. And what we learn from the cloud, I think I'm going to use my red marker this time, is something that we've, we've seen you know, o- over and over is that it teaches us about who God is because God's represented in this cloud And these things are super obvious and that the cloud is present. You know, he's there with his people. 
you also see God is faithful. He's doing exactly what he promised to do and he doesn't you know, leave them or forsake them. He continues to carry on his promises and keeps reminding them of that. And he's also guiding them. This is what we learn about God. You know, he's present, he's, he's mobile, and he's sojourning with the people. And he's faithful. And his presence is steady. That's one of the things I want you to see here, that uh, God's... God doesn't just show up for the Exodus event and the plagues and the Red Sea and all the miraculous stuff. He's also here for all the really super regular stuff where everybody's bringing the exact same gifts for 12 days in a row. You see, God is faithful like that. And he's faithful to and steady in his presence with us even in the most regular of events and days and everything that we're doing and he's there present faithfully to to guide us and you see that's what the cloud does is that there's times it would settle down and they would stay somewhere and there's times that it was moved and and you followed that's what you did you see god guides you he tells you he tells you when to to sit and to stay and he tells you you know when to go fetch too I did just compare us to dogs, but that's for our humility. <laughs> All right, those, looking at 10, chapter 10, we see the proclamation of salvation. I'll just have you look at the last two verses of this section, which is verses 9 and 10, as we come to a close here. It says, now, now when you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before Yahweh your God and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feast and on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be as a remembrance of you before your God. I am Yahweh, your God. I remember these trumpets from this military that's brought together. Was, it was a war alarm for their enemies. So we're here and we're coming. It was what I talk about in salvation that the, the word salvation relates to both destruction and deliverance. You know, does, salvation isn't just deliverance only, but when God delivers, he destroys all of your enemies. He destroys everything of the old life in his deliverance of you. He doesn't just help you escape and then leave the enemy there in the old way of life there. He destroys it. So in the sounding of these trumpets, it was a reminder you know, one, you see that you would be remembered before Yahweh, which is you would see he's forwarding his plan. He's pulled you together as a military unit to bring you into the land. He's forwarding exactly what he promised to do, and you can enjoy life dedicated to him. You know, your life being a burnt offering where the entirety of it is burnt up in service to him because of the enjoyment of the peace that you have 
And he says, this shall also be a remembrance uh, of you before your God. I am Yahweh, your God. I'm the one who fights for you and will destroy all your enemies. Uh, I'm the one who fights for you and will deliver you. All of this text reminds me of what Paul wrote to Timothy concerning being made clean and useful and living to the Lord in 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 21 is what I'm going to read here in closing. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid godless and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their word will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of clay and some of honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, having been prepared for every good work. I think you can hear the same sort of logic from numbers here in this text where it's accurately handling God's word and choosing to depart from wickedness that we cleanse ourselves and are useful to the master. Remember hearing a sermon by Paul Washer once and him saying, you know, one of the ways that you know that you're unconverted is that you're useless to God. And when I heard that, you know, I, I was confident that I had been converted, but how it convicted me was thinking, I don't want to be useless to God. Uh, I want to be cleansed, fit for use, and when he has something for me to do, I want to be ready to do it. I want to be useful to God. So may God help us by his spirit and for the sake of his son not to be useless to the master, but to prepare ourselves in holiness as we are this very day in our fellowship with one another. And may we be used to help one another to further prepare in holiness as we wait to enter into that land which God has prepared for us. Let's pray. Our holy God, we pray that you would teach us to reverence you as we ought to be grateful to you for the great salvation that you have provided for us in the Passover lamb, the Christ who has saved us from being cut off from you, but rather to be cut into a covenant with you whereby you give us new hearts through the merits and the work of Christ alone. We pray that you would help us to have a right view and desire of holiness because we ultimately desire you. We desire to have fellowship with you, to know you, to be useful to you, to live life in you, and to make you known. Give us a more holy and strong desire to seek you and to live for you and help us in our fellowship to stir one another up to good works which you have 
prepared beforehand that we would edify and encourage one another in these things so that you would be more clearly seen in our lives and how we speak and how we live to you to whom all glory is due. Amen.